as you're turning to 2 Peter chapter 2. We see throughout Scripture, and we've been reminded of that, that the Lord knows all. And it's hard, at least for me, to get my head around that concept. It's hard for most of us, I believe. And, and Peter, he, he learned this firsthand when, when Jesus told Peter, about Peter's denial. They were in the, heading toward the Garden of Gethsemane. It was after the Last Supper, and they're, they're journeying together. And when Jesus makes the big reveal about Peter denying him, of course, Peter can't believe it. He, would ever, he can't see himself ever doing that. But the Lord knows. And I believe it was because of that failure, I believe that Peter began to understand, to begin to understand the breadth of the Lord's knowledge. The word of the Lord is true. The Lord knows. And and Peter has been reminding his readers in this letter that the Lord's magnificent and precious promises are true. And and that trusting in these promises will impact how we live. The word of the Lord is true, and we can trust his word. Especially when times get hard. Especially when other voices want to compete with our listening to the Lord and His Word. And these difficulties, the Lord is not surprised. A former colleague who told me about 20 years ago, it was in September of 2001, he he said, you know, Jake, he said, the Lord is not surprised by anything. He's not surprised by anything. And and we talk often about the sovereignty of God, God being on his throne. But when difficulties come, we've got to be reminded that the Lord is not surprised. The Lord Lord knows. And so Peter begins in chapter 2. He says, false prophets also appeared among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. Hmm. He's speaking to the church, which, is, which we have to remember. He says there will be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves, and, and many will follow their indecent behavior. And because of them, the way of, of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. Hmm. These false prophets are appearing among the people in the church. And, and these false prophets, these teachers, they're introducing destructive heresies. They're even denying Jesus the Master who bought them. And they're bringing destruction upon themselves. This buying, the, the, the Bible scholar Tom Schreiner, he says it like this. He writes, Jesus as Lord bought these teachers as his slaves. Bond servants. You've heard Peter say, we are bond servants. We're bond slaves. And these ones who've been purchased by Jesus himself through his atoning death on the cross, Schreiner, he says, the expression indicates that the false teachers were part of the church which Peter's addressing, and that at one time they professed faith in Jesus. And at one time they were loyal servants of Jesus, but now they deny the Lord who has spilled his blood for them. In verse 2, Peter says, Many will follow their indecent behavior. And because 
of the false teachers and their depravity, the way of the truth will be maligned. And see, the Lord knows this. The Lord knows. The way of the truth will be maligned, will be blasphemed. Paul tells Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, Paul says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. And, and then Paul tells Timothy why. He, he says, the time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. Wow! You see, false teachers look attractive to folks who don't really want to hear the truth. And Paul says they will turn their ears away from the truth and will turn aside the myths. What sounds good? And this, this, friends, is one manner in which the way of truth is is maligned now. The way of truth will will be blasphemed. And, And what happens? Well, the unbeliever, the one who wants nothing to do with the gospel, wants nothing to do with the church, this one will have an absolute field day when he or she hears a, a false teacher in a church who is wreaking havoc. And see, this, this hurts the testimony and the witness of, of that church. Peter says, in the greed of the false prophets and the teachers, they will exploit you with false words. And we see these individuals now they, who will divine your future. You can call a number. <laughs> they will divine your future. They will help you have your best life now. And modern-day prophets, quote-unquote, they say things such as suffering is a sign of lack of success. If you're suffering, then something's wrong. And I'm trying to remember what Jesus said about himself as the Son of God. Do you remember what Jesus said to one who was eager to be his disciple? It was in Matthew chapter 8. And this scribe comes to Jesus and says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, The foxes have holes and the birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. See, Jesus' reality is not one that these teachers probably wish to present. Jesus suffered. Peter suffered. And Peter says that these false teachers, judgment from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. There's another Bible teacher named R.J. Baucom, and, and he summarizes three characteristics of false prophets. And he says this, they lack divine authority. I mean, they're not of God. They promise the people peace when God threatens judgment. And they will certainly be judged by God. And this this promising the people peace when God threatens judgment, that's big. Let's look at that for a second. In order to avoid the risk of anger or disloyalty from the follower, the prophet will never point out God's judgment. And friends, that's a dangerous, dangerous, dangerous place to be. And we see that all around us. And see, the Lord knows that judgment's coming. And then Peter, in verse 4, he 
he begins a, a, an interesting direction in his letter. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness, hell for judgment, and he did not spare the ancient world, but protected Noah, a, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, and when he, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example of what is coming for the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, his cousin of Abraham, who was oppressed by the perverted conduct of unscrupulous people, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell. What, what in the world is Peter talking about? Well, see, Peter knew the law of the prophets. He knew the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. And he goes back to the, the book of beginnings. He goes back to Genesis, and he says this in Genesis chapter 6. It begins. We read in Genesis. Now, now it came about when mankind began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. And we're all adults in here. We know what that means. Don't we? Beautiful. And this is the same beautiful. The same word which describes the tempting fruit of the forbidden tree in the Garden of Eden. Well, these earthly women were sources of temptation to these sons of God, these heavenly angelic beings, not born of women and not born of earth. So Peter has this on his mind, and he also probably remembers the words of Jesus. We, we saw these in our kingdom encounters in Matthew chapter 22. We heard Jesus say the following. Jesus was, was engaging a trick question from the Sadducees, and it was a question regarding the afterlife and the widow and multiple marriages. They're trying to give Jesus this conundrum, and Jesus says says you don't really understand any of it. <laughs> but he says this in verse 30 of chapter 22. In the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So angels in heaven evidently are not supposed to marry, are they? And, and, and they're not supposed to produce offspring. And they're certainly not to produce offspring with earth, earthly women who it sounds like they were unwilling participants. And we know what that means. We know what that is implying. And all this is Genesis, the first two verses of Genesis chapter 6. You go to one more verse in Genesis 6, verse 4. You read a little further and you see this. The Nephilim. It's a weird word. They were on earth in these days, and 
also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of mankind. Kind of like as Abraham went into his wife Sarah and she bore a son. We know what that means. These daughters of mankind bore children to these sons of God. These are the Nephilim. And the word Nephilim itself means fallen. And so these sons of God, these fallen angels, they're disobedient. They've, they're not supposed to marry. They're not supposed to have offspring, especially by force. They're disobedient, and God has committed these angels to pits of darkness. Gloom and darkness and despair in these pits, which are held for divine judgment. And Peter goes on to say, if God did not spare the ancient world, but he protected Noah. Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And that flood actually destroys the Nephilim from a verse earlier. The ancient world was not spared from judgment. And you know the story. We could, we could sit here and tell that story right now. Peter continues this vein of thought from, from the book of the beginnings, from Genesis. We read in Genesis that the Lord sees the wickedness of mankind as great on the earth. That every intent of the thoughts of the heart of man is only evil continually. Jeremiah 17.9 says... The heart, above all things, is deceitful. Always been the case. (laughs) The Lord says, I'm going to wipe out mankind, for I have created, whom I have created from the face of the earth. I'm sorry I've made them, but Noah has found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The flood comes. And that word for flood is where we get that word cataclysm, a sudden violent event. And Peter tells us that Noah is a preacher of righteousness. And and Tom Schreiner, he says this. He says, the Old Testament never informs us that Noah preached to his contemporaries. Think about that. The idea that Noah entreated his generation to repent, however, is common in Jewish tradition. And here's why. If you've got a family... If, if, if we're out in the yard doing yard work, the neighbors say, hey, the rattle bushes are doing yard work. If the family of Noah is out building an ark in their front yard, neighbors are going to want to know why. So it stands to reason. Noah, a herald of righteousness, because of his obedience to the Lord. What, what did the Lord say to Noah? Well, in Genesis 6, he he tells Noah, make for yourself this ark. We know the story. You shall make the ark ark with compartments covered inside and out with pitch. And this is how you're going to make it. And and, and then we know that that the Lord, in essence, gives Noah a blueprint. And then the Lord says this, I'm bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which there is the breath of life. That's his breath, the Lord's breath. Same breath he gave Adam. Everything that is on the earth shall perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you, your sons, and your sons' wives. God can't forget Mrs. Noah and his sons' wives. Eight. 
flesh. You shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They'll be male and female. And the Lord says, birds, animals, every crawling thing, two of every kind will come to you. And then he says, as for you, take for yourself some of every food that's edible, gather for yourself. It'll be food for you and them. And the reason I'm, I'm reading this now is for you to see one thing. Genesis chapter 6, verse 22 reads, Noah did these things according to everything that God had commanded him, so he did. Yeah. Noah's obedience to build the ark, in essence, preaches the gospel to his godless neighbors and community. And as Noah was obedient in the Lord's direction, to that direction, as he spent day in and day out building this ark, the Lord rescues Noah, his wife, their three sons and spouses, the eight, while the ancient world is not spared. So following these indictments, Peter's been pointing out about the disobedient angels and the ancient world. Peter says in, in, in verse 6 of his letter, 2 Peter chapter 2, he says, If God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having, having made them an example of what is coming for the ungodly. Sodom and Gomorrah, why are they famous or infamous? As with the disobedient angels and the ancient world, Peter, he continues to use Genesis as, as his example, as his preaching platform. And, and in Genesis 18, verse 20, the Lord says this, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. And, and I'm going to go down now and see whether they've done entirely as the outcry, which has come to me, as the outcry indicates. And if not, I'm going to know. So two angels, they come to Sodom. In the evening, and, and Lot cousin of Abraham, righteous Lot, is sitting at the gate. Lot sees them. Lot stands to meet them and bows down with his face to the ground. Why? Because he knows who they are, what they are, and whom they represent. Lot invites them to his home, and they say, no, we're going to spend the night in the public square. And we read that Lot strongly urges them, so they turn aside to him, and they enter his house. The men of Sodom, they surround the house, both young and old, and they call to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, so that we may have relations with them. We're all adult here, we know what that means, don't we? Lot goes out to the doorway and he shuts the door behind him and he says to the crowd, he says, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now look, I have two daughters who have not had relations with any man. They're virgins. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do not do anything to these men. 
because they have come under the shelter of my roof. And maybe this is a new story to some of you. I, I was shocked the very first time I ever read it. Genesis 19. The men of Sodom, they say, get out of the way. And then one says to another, this one, pointing to Lot, came in as a foreigner, and already he's acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. And we know what that means. They press hard against Lot, and they move forward to break down the door. But the angels, they reach out their hands, they bring Lot into the house with them, and they shut the door. And then they strike all the men who were at the doorway blind. And the two men, they say to Lot, Whom else do you have here? A a, a son-in-law, your sons and your daughters, and whomever you have in the city, bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place. Because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. And the next morning... In Genesis 19, 24, the Lord rains brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. Peter says, if God rescued righteous Lot, and that's what God did, who was in Sodom, who was oppressed by the perverted conduct of unscrupulous people by what Lot saw and heard, Lot, that that righteous man, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by the lawless deeds of the perverted and scrupulous people while he lived among them. You see, if God can can do all of the above, if if God did not spare angels when they sinned, and he didn't spare the ancient world, but he protected Noah, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and if he rescued righteous Lot, if the Lord knows all of the above. Then Peter tells us in verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from a trial. And to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Peter says, especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt passion, and who despise authority. Especially those two. Why, why do you think that these two groups are highlighted? Well, those who despise authority, they don't want to answer to anyone, do they? They are unwilling to take any direction. And those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt passion, and we've seen a horrible example of that, haven't we? Those who do that, that's the supreme, extreme example of wanting one's own way. Yeah. Those two, (laughs) unwilling to take direction and wanting one's own way, Both of those are seen, (laughs) they're first seen in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Those two groups, those two mindsets, encapsulate the entirety of sin, don't they? 
it's about sin. Then the Lord, then the Lord knows how to deal with sin. I'll say that again. If the Lord knows about sin, then the Lord knows how to deal with sin. And isn't that, that's really kind of the big takeaway for the day. <laughs> the Lord knows, and the Lord knows how. And we, we saw Peter say that in verse 9. If the Lord knows all this and has done all this, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from a trial. Aren't we thankful? <laughs> Aren't we thankful? Amen. The Lord knows and the Lord knows how. Do you trust Him? Do you trust Him? In His time, the Lord will take care of all of it. The good, the bad, and we've seen some ugly today. The Lord will bring judgment. And the Lord will bring rescue. Thanks be to God. The Lord has brought us rescue through Jesus. Through what he accomplished on the cross to take care of our sin. But we've got to turn from sin. We've got to say, Jesus, we're sinners. I'm a sinner. i got to speak for me. Mama can't do it. Grandma can't do it. I have to do it. Lord, I'm a sinner. And I know that your word says that you, your son, went to the cross to take my sin burden. And I trust that. And I know that your word says that when I hand you my sin, you will give me salvation and peace with God. Hmm. And we read that here. The word of God, we can trust it. Trusting Trusting that the Lord will, be, will bring rescue he has. And see, trusting his timing, trusting his perfect timing requires two things. Trusting him and trusting his word. Trusting the Lord's perfect timing requires trusting him and trusting his word. That the Lord knows And you know what? If we can trust him with all of this, you know what else? We can trust him with our eternity. We can trust him with our eternity. Let's pray together. Lord, this morning we see in your word again promises. promises because they're from you. It's truth that you will provide. You're going to bring judgment, but you're going to bring rescue. And Father, you've given us the very best rescue in the form of a Savior on the cross, the sinless Son of God who came to take our sin with him on the cross. But we've got to step away from that sin. We've got to confess that sin. We've got to turn from that sin in order to have the salvation which your Son has freely given us. We're thankful for Jesus. We're thankful for his rescue. 
We're thankful that you know all about our trials. We're thankful that you have given us one who has defeated sin and death and hell. Thankful this morning for Jesus.